morning. Good morning. Welcome to Watts Radio. I'm Jeff. And I'm Hanji. And we'll be your hosts for this hour. This week on Watts Radio, we discuss electric vehicles. Are you surprised? We're not. We are not surprised about electric vehicles. We're going to talk to Dr. Mike Nicholas of the University of California, Davis, and the Plug-in Hybrid Electric Vehicle Center about everything electric. That probably means we get to talk a little bit about America's favorite superhero, Mr. Elon Musk. Indeed, Jeff, we will discuss Mr. Muskie, as well as we'll discuss uh, the Environmental Protection Agency in our new oncoming segment, uh, Keeping the EPA Great Again. Just keeping it great forevermore because it's now in jeopardy for the first time in, well, a while. Um, in addition to that, we're going to learn a little bit about what else is going on in the world. What's happening with our great friends the North, Canada. All that and more when we return on Watts Radio. Stay with us. To Watts Radio. If you've missed any Watts Radio episodes, be sure to tune in check, and check them out on the World Wide Web at wattsradio.org. We also have a Twitter account, so if you want to ask questions about energy, climate change, or just life and things in general, be sure to tweet at us at wattskdvs if you so wish. Ah, uh, yes, Jeff. Jeff, I smell something. <laughs> What, what what was that exactly? I think that was America's favorite superhero. The Musk Corner. The Musky Corner of Iron Man. Yes, Jeff. Uh, in Musky Corner events this week, um, uh, well... Tesla's actually having a little bit of trouble. Uh, it looks like they're running out of money. Um, uh, Tesla is about to unveil 
uh, or well, hopes to unveil this year their mass market uh, affordable electric sedan, the Model 3. Um, the Model 3 has achieved some impressive press uh, and sold a number of pre-orders, um, but now they're wondering if they're going to be able to make their deadline. And in ramping up production, they have been blowing through their hundreds of millions of dollars of cash reserves. And now they're coming up against the bottom. Um, even Mr. Elon himself on a call with investors says, how close to the edge do we want to go? According to our financial plan, no capital needs to be raised for the Model 3, but we get very close to the edge. So probably not the best thing for shareholders, Musk says. Mm, so it's unlikely that they're probably going to raise capital to reduce the risk. And all of this has sent the, the Tesla, track, uh, Tesla stock down. Um, uh, about 10% uh, in the last two weeks. Which maybe makes some sense, because if they're about to uh, issue um, additional shares to raise equity, you would expect the stock price to drop. That's that's kind of how markets behave. So nothing too weird there. Um, I mean, absolutely almost, well, very few analysts out there think that Tesla has any chance whatsoever of hitting their Tesla Model 3 re release deadlines. Um, usually... Uh, millions and millions of miles are driven on vehicles that are about to be mass-produced before they've, um, you know, been released. And due to the lack of Model 3 sightings on the streets and the upcoming release date at, towards the end of 2017, uh, analysts just don't think it's going to happen. But who knows? Jeff, the analyst in my heart thinks it's going to happen. Oh. Well, you know, maybe you and Elon's mother think it's going to happen. You're going to do it, Elon. You're going to do it. Um, in other Elon Musky news, uh, SpaceX uh, this week announced they were going to be sending two very wealthy uh, astronauts for a uh, uh, trip around the moon. Uh, did you read about this, Jeff? I actually didn't read about it because contrary to the belief of all of our listeners, I do read news about things that are not Elon Musk related. Oh my gosh, Jeff. This actually was pretty pretty funny. So he actually tweeted and he, he tweeted about having a big news announcement this week um, that SpaceX was going to make this big announcement. And the announcement was that these two uh, mega millionaires basically had paid um, to take the first manned uh, Falcon Heavy. So this is SpaceX's newest rocket that's going to be much larger. Um, and the manned Dragon SS capsule that will eventually be able to deliver uh, passengers to the space station and further. Uh, and they're going to take this on a tour, I think a two-week tour, or about a week and a half, two-week trip around the moon. Huh. And uh, what what happens to their billions of dollars if the uh, Falcon explodes on its way up to the moon? That remains to be seen. I'm hoping it's going to be like Scrooge McDuck, and they're going to actually want to take it with them, so they're going to explode. So it's basically just going to be like money flying out of the launch pad. Um, but, uh, you know. Stay tuned on that one. Stay tuned. Um, okay, Jeff. I want to keep the EPA great. You want to keep the EPA great? Well, that makes you uh, at least one person because there's someone out there that definitely does not want to meet, make the EPA great or see the EPA great. Um, in fact, he'd like to see the EPA become ungreat. Is that Scott Pruitt, the EPA administrator? Yeah, that's Scott Pruitt and Donald Trump. Oh, um, also the president of the United States? Yeah. Oh, dang. What about that Grim Reaper Steve Bannon guy? Uh, I don't know. I don't think he really has time to weigh in on the EPA when he's too busy with his alt-right agenda of um, basically, uh, I don't know, trying to destroy democracy as we know it. The fourth turning is coming.
The fourth turning! Ah, nothing quite like that old white voice. Ah, well, I if you didn't know what the fourth turning was, well, that's good. So, Jeff, um, I hear that we used to have this thing called the Renewable Fuel Standard. Yeah, so we have the Renewable Fuel Standard. It's actually pretty much the biggest global renewable energy policy that's in place. Um, it's responsible for the 10% ethanol that we now use in our vehicles. And um, it's been supporting biodiesel, renewable diesel, and cellulosic fuels um, over the past, basically the past decade or so. Um, and so Donald Trump, uh, originally when he was campaigning, said, I absolutely think ethanol is a terrible idea, completely terrible. This, this policy is unacceptable. And then later he backed off a little bit on it because of the um, corn lobby. So the Renewable Fuel Standard is a really great agricultural policy. It supports corn prices. It helps out American farmers. Um, love it or hate it. Um, it also maybe does something to start producing uh, liquid fuels that are potentially lower carbon than um, gasoline and diesel. Uh, we've talked about biofuel before. Um, so biofuel issues aside, uh, the Trump administration is changing where the renewable fuel standard obligates compliance, right? It's called the point of obligation. In the past, refineries had to blend renewable fuel or they had to acquire renewable fuel um, at a percent share based on what amount of gasoline they produced pretty much. And now the renew or there's there's rumors on the street, there's word that this is going to happen, word. that the uh, point of obligation is going to change. So refineries are going to be off the hook from needing to comply. Instead, it's going to be blenders, which is the guys that finish off fuels before they end up at retail stations. Mm. Um, so the issue is there's a lot of blenders out there. They're not necessarily the biggest uh, companies in the world, and they're going to get stuck with these huge obligations of needing to acquire the fuels and blend them. And so there's a lot of concern that this is going to substantially weaken the policy and make it so that you effectively can't enforce it. Um, so the market price for uh, tradable credits for the renewable fuel center have tanked. Um, and a funny thing happened, which is the Renewable Fuel um, Agency uh, Association, Renewable Fuels Association, they came out in support of changing the volume obligation, um, which is weird because they're an ethanol producer. But it turns out there's some shady backroom dealings at play, which is they were going to come out in favor of this if then another large uh, refiner would then support them to push for 15% ethanol blends in fuel. So right now we're capped at 10%, and we might be seeing 15% ethanol now in the future if this point of obligation changes. So that's the update kind of on these shady backroom dealings that's going on with the renewable fuel standard. And it's just one more step in kind of removing the ability for the EPA to regulate and enforce climate policies. Wow, Jeff. Wow. Yeah, I was never like a huge uh, proponent of the renewable fuel standard, but I guess that's just because I didn't really um, think it would ever go away. So, you know, now that it's gone, I guess that's just how it is. You know, I never, you don't really appreciate anything until it's gone, Jeff. Well, it's not fully gone. It's just, uh, I don't know, probably close to the chopping block is, is, the, is the word on the street. Jeff, you got to know when to let things go, okay? Sometimes you just got to, you got to let her go, Jeff. You got to let her go. Um, but yeah, no, Jeff, uh, that really adds to just another uh, in a slew of bad news for the EPA. Um, I have to say, uh, you know, I've been hearing lots of stuff about this. Um, uh, 
funding cuts, um, you know, shakeups. They uh, released the budget 2018 budget blueprint um, this year. At least it's gone through some pieces of it have come out of the uh, office for uh, the the congressional budget office, and so we're starting to see some estimates. Um, And uh, you know, um, they're saying that they're going to cut the EPA by some you know 40 or 50 percent perhaps uh, in its funding. Um, They're they're thinking they might cut. Uh, there's been all these estimates flying around that you know anywhere from one to one in five to one in three people in the EPA are going to lose their jobs. Yeah, it's a uh, pretty big attempts to downsize it. Um, there's some programs that are just be- basically being zeroed out. So this is the uh, president's budget out of the Office of Management and Budget um, preliminary drafts that basically zero out climate programs. Not a huge surprise there. Um, Zeroing out a lot of uh, various research programs and stuff. They're cutting um, research and development, could lose about 40% of its budget. Um, state grants are being cut 30%. Uh, they're axing programs and funding for Alaskan Native villages to further exacerbate federal and tribal issues. Maybe people have been following the Dakota Access Pipeline issue, which yet again is kind of the Trump administration trying to completely uh, attack disadvantaged communities and uh, tribal lands, um, which is not great. Um, We should probably work more to deal with that. Um, So EPA budget under attack. Under attack. The EPA. We have to be vigilant, Jeff. Very vigilant. No, uh, I'm concerned, Jeff, that that, uh, this is going to be one of these things where, you know, there was a, the last time that we saw these kind of major attacks on the EPA was probably the first term of the Reagan administration. And I mean, like, I wasn't really aware of anything going on then, but I've read about it a little bit. And uh, they, you know, didn't quite get everything to go through. And um, there were some problems. But this time, you know, we have a, a fully staffed Republican uh, House and Senate, you know, and a Republican in the White House. It seems highly likely that they might um, be able to hobble the the EPA um, such that it's unable to enforce some of these really important laws that you know protect uh, drinking water and air for you know the majority of Americans. So. Yeah, and um, the NRDC and other organizations have recently been showing a lot of photos of cities before the EPA came into existence. There's this great one of New York City. Um, and you look at it and just like it's dense with smog. This was literally a point in American history when smog killed people. Um, Beijing's air quality is pretty low. Uh, U.S. cities used to be pretty bad. We're still seeing major air-related deaths in California. Um, the L.A. Basin area has some of the worst air quality in the world, which has a lot to do with our vehicle use um, and agriculture. And EPA regulations are helping to clean that up. So having a functioning, working, healthy EPA saves lives and is a pretty small price to pay, considering their budget's only, you know, a handful of billions of dollars. 0.22% of the uh, federal discretionary spending. Um, <clears throat> it's, uh, or some or the total federal budget, actually, um, was what I was reading. Uh, so, Jeff, you, you have something else here that you said. Um, in the midst of all this, though, there was a hearing on social cost of carbon. Yeah, so this gets really (laughs) wonky really quickly. (laughs) But um, so major thing that the Obama administration, huge, huge success story under the Obama administration, was integrating the social cost of carbon into 
cost-benefit analysis. So the U.S. government, for projects in general, they have to do cost-benefit analysis, which is basically we look at all the costs of doing this project, um, who the losers are going to be, what it's going to cost society, um, risks from people that if it increases death potential, we look at that. Right? There's the cost of a, a human life that gets incorporated into these analyses. And then we look at the benefits, right? And the idea is we shouldn't be doing projects like federal stuff should not be occurring if the benefits are not outweighing the costs. So part of the cost-benefit calculation was incorporating a cost of carbon, right? This is different from a carbon tax, which is it was only used to decide whether or not projects should or shouldn't go through, right? And so if you're going to have a project that's associated with emitting more carbon, such as something like a pipeline approval, um, or something in you know in that vein, you'd have to consider the cost of carbon in that in that budgeting process. And so the Obama administration, after I mean, this is a very uh, math-heavy, analytically, scientifically based process. They arrived at um, through consensus through a public uh, process a social cost of carbon of thirty-seven dollars per ton of CO two, um, and they were using that within you know general cost-benefit analysis decision. Okay, and so $37. So this $37 represents the cost that they would use to assume for every ton of CO2 that a project would emit. Now, a project can emit a lot of tons of CO2, okay? So, you know, $40 a ton or so, you know, it actually adds up pretty quick, and it can make a pretty substantial um, uh, change in, in, you know, how you might look at a project. Um, but, uh, you know, still you're going to discount. Usually these, these types of costs are discounted. So, you know, emissions might occur sometime way off in the future, um, et cetera, et cetera. But it's a huge step forward. And, uh, you know, it was a pipe dream that, uh, I'm, that has passed. It hasn't quite passed yet. It's just they're now really, uh, there was a hearing to reconsider if that value <laughs> is the correct value to put on it. You were too slow there, Jeff. I was, I was, I was, I was playing pessimism there and you were, you were so slow to pick it up and I was, it was almost sad. Um, okay, well, we can talk more about, we'll have to do an episode on social cost carbon and how it was a dream of the, the like, of our childhood, I think. Yeah. Um, the, the cost is likely going to drop under the Trump administration. Yeah. Discussions from the hearing, it sounds like it's going to get into the maybe like the $2 or $4 range. Although there was one statement, which is uh, the idea that the social cost of carbon could be sacrificed if a carbon tax were to be implemented. Oh, okay. Well, you know, and you know who else was proposing a carbon tax, Jeff, actually? A bunch of liberal academics in California? No, a bunch of Republicans um, and former Secretary of State James Baker, uh, you know, some uh, Henry Paulson, who was a Secretary of Treasury and not a liberal guy. Um, these guys have been proposing uh, that a carbon tax is uh, not only the most um, efficient way to address climate change, but also the most pro-growth policy for addressing climate change. Yeah. So it's it actually fits in line with a lot of libertarian and conservative thinking, which is if there's something really, really bad that you absolutely don't want or that is very detrimental to society, like cigarettes or something or alcohol, you put a tax on it. Right, and reduces consumption. And so the idea is you would put a tax on carbon, but rather than having all that money go into some government pockets, which then just gets spent it, spent on who knows what frivolous thing, you know, 
big government likes to spend money on. A study of the flow rate of ketchup. Exactly. Um, You would refund all of the tax dollars back to the population, back back to households. Um, And so the Citizen Climate Lobby, which is a grassroots organization, has also been pushing for this idea at a federal level. You can get a national price on carbon, um, and then that will work to address climate change, which is not a partisan issue. Um, Over 60% of the country supports action on climate change, and you could take that money and refund it back to uh, back to households so that they wouldn't be worse off necessarily for paying a fair price on emissions. Yep. And, um, you know, Jeff, I think that, uh, you know, political viability or feasibility aside, obviously this is a long run, uh, you know, for the political feasibility. It's not one that anybody's really talking about. But at the same time, you know, um, the carbon tax represents something that, uh, like a lot of solutions for specific pollution um, or specific emissions could be really efficient um, and really successful and has been um, in other cases. Uh, you know, and so speaking of address uh, policies to address climate change, Jeff, uh, Germany, obviously somebody that has done a lot, uh, taken a lot of steps to reduce um, CO2 emissions, um, they are discussing a policy to actually uh, implement a zero emissions by t- uh, 2030, um, which would require 100% of a vehicles, new vehicles sold in 2030 to be electric. Um, this is actually a pretty crazy, ambitious thing to even discuss. Uh, I it's, wish- it's a very ambitious thing to discuss. California's discussed something similar to this. Um, but in Germany, it's an interesting kind of place because Germany's actually been expanding their use of coal power in the recent past, which means that although we like to think of Germany as being this bastion of green environmentalism, it's actually increasing their carbon emissions relative to most other industrialized economies right now. Um, So if you put EVs more on the road in Germany and you grow your electricity uh, supply by using coal, you can end up with an interesting point where your electric vehicles are actually more polluting than internal combustion engines. Yeah, Jeff, usually the break-even point um, for electric vehicles charged on a utility grid is one where you have um, some renewable generation or at least a carbon intensity that's lower than the best um uh, combined cycle gas, natural gas efficiency out there. Um, and that's usually about the break-even point. And so uh, in Germany, um, considering that they're have already s- slowing down or completely stopping a lot of new investments in wind um, due to some growth stability issues, uh, as well as continuing and ramping up their use of coal and natural gas, um, unfortunately uh, for um, Uh, German EV drivers at the margins, those EVs that are going to be added in the future, um, at least barring additional changes in electricity policy, are likely to be using more and more fossil energy to charge their batteries. And yes, that would uh, potentially increase emissions overall. but Jeff, this isn't the case everywhere because not everywhere has a, uh, some places have policies that are very strong at driving more renewables into the utility grid, um, and in those places we might see uh, benefits from driving more EVs. Um, places like California. Yep, that's that's true. Also, EVs are a major part of trying to allow for increased renewable penetration because there's this idea that you can match. Uh, the batteries of electric vehicles when not in use with your grid when it's overproducing solar and wind. 
Um, and so California is really pretty bullish on expanding our renewables. There was recently discussion of moving to a 100% renewable energy, uh, making up California's grid uh, kind of bill that's maybe being talked about right now. There's no real teeth in that sort of thing yet. Um, but so there are goals to really get to this deep decarbonization strategy for California's grid. And so at that point, EVs on California's grid could could probably look pretty good. And so California is really bullish on getting EVs out there. We're looking to have uh, 4.2 million EVs on California's roads by 2025 uh, or 2030. Um, and so uh, that that's looking pretty cool. Um, which I think, yeah, and uh, Jeff, I was reading actually. So San Francisco actually just passed uh, or introduced some legislation that's going to require twenty uh, percent of all new parking structures um, to be ready to install EV chargers. Um, and this is a push, you know, so that they can just kind of get the city ready and get all new building stock kind of ready for these EVs to come along. But ironically, that's at the exact same time period that San Francisco is trying to remove a bunch of their parking spots. <laughs> so I don't know how many new parking spots they're actually going to end up having. Yeah, that's true. It, well, this is a new building construction. So, with all the big um, uh, development that's happening, if you you know if you drive down to the city these days, you'll notice that they're adding um, two of the, the 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 new tallest towers in the city. Um, you know, the the new tallest buildings are going in, and and uh, there's the the giant Salesforce office complex that's um, um, happening by the, the bus station. Uh, you know, uh, anyway, changing the face of San Francisco. I think we should take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk to you about something really esoteric that you probably haven't ever heard of. We're going to talk about reinsurance. So hang on in there. Welcome back to Watts Radio. Welcome back, Jeff. If you've missed any of our delightful Watts Radio episodes and you just really have a hankering to learn more about energy, to learn more about what's new in the world of, I don't know, Trumpocalypse and how it affects climate policy and energy policy, then go back to our web logs of the radio show at wattsradio.org and tune in, point, click, listen as you would like. Jeff, I have a fear it's a fear of catastrophes. Yeah. Um, well, I, I don't know if I can help you with your fear of catastrophes. Well, it's just that I'm averse, Jeff. I'm, I'm averse to risk. Huh. Well, maybe like other people that are averse to risk, you should in consider some sort of insurance policy. Oh, really? Wow. I didn't even know I could do that. Can I get insurance for a natural, like for a catastrophe, like a, like a natural disaster? Well... Yes, but before we make it sound too much like we're trying to sell you guys insurance, we're not. We're going to talk about reinsurance, an industry that you probably haven't heard of, um, but maybe you have. Uh, it's the biggest industry you've never heard of, um, and it's it's a big deal. Increasingly, it's a bigger deal as climate change and climate change risks start to affect all of us. Um, so this week on 20 Minutes of Collective Googling, Hanji and I have decided to delve into what reinsurance actually is and why you should care. Yeah, so let's take a step back first. 
first, 20, here on 20 Minutes of Collective Googling, um, we spend 20 minutes, that's 10 minutes each or 20 minutes collectively, Googling something that we don't really know anything about. Uh, so you don't have to. Uh, and then we try to talk about it and pretend like we know what we're talking about. Or, well, anyway, at least relay what we just read. So reinsurance is, uh, uh, is kind of like a shock absorber for insurance companies. So the way to think of this is you all pay insurance for things like your car or health insurance. And you get an insurance policy from a company that issues it to you. And the premise is if something bad happens, the insurance company will pay you money to cover that loss. And that works okay for them because they have so many people that are paying into their policy thing that if something bad happens to you, something bad is ha didn't happen to the other people on the policy, and so they have enough money to cover your damages, right? However, what happens if something bad happens to everybody that's covered under their insurance policy? Right. A big bump in the road. A big bump in the road. like. Everybody has Geico insurance or something, and every Geico user gets simultaneously struck by lightning and their cars explode. Like, that's not going to happen, but it could. There's a tiny, tiny fraction of a percent of a probability. And so if that case, if that were to happen, Geico would be in pretty bad shape. And so insurance companies turn to this reinsurance, which is a set of other companies that insure the insurance companies in case something really bad happens to insurance companies. They have this risk of many of their policyholders basically needing to take advantage of the insurance. And, okay, so that's totally true, Jeff, but it's also a total simplification. So reinsurers are not just uh, not just these policies like you and I do, where you, know, you just have this Allstate that you call and you pay them $100 a month. They're companies that provide a range of capital to insurers when insurers come up against big, big problems, okay? Big problems. So catastrophic losses. So these are the natural disasters that Hollywood loves making movies about. Right. And, and as Jeff was saying, that when these big natural disasters strike, they both strike across a large uh, scale of industries and scope of things. And so both you have huge losses within particular industries, but you also have tons of different types of losses across different types of insurance categories, right? And so a single insurance company um, can, you know, that insures maybe different types of things like homes and vehicles and businesses and windows, you know, might take different types of losses across a lot of different pieces of its portfolio. And so what they, what insurance companies do is they tend to try and offload a lot of the risk of insuring some of these things that have catastrophic and also overlapping failures. And the people that help them get the money to do that and also buy that risk are reinsurance companies. Now, Jeff, I think that this was something at first, and I still maybe believe, very boring. Very, very boring. <laughs> it's it's very boring because when you get into like numbers and risk premiums and talking about modeling that stuff, it can be pretty boring. But that's kind of exactly what climate change is. It's a lot of modeling and talking about risks. So it kind of fits nicely in that, especially considering climate change is going to increase these risks and push them to levels that they're so uncertain. There's this uncertainty with how reinsurance should actually value premiums, how they should diversify things, and what that means for being able to insure people in the future in these potentially very climate risky areas. 
Um, so I, I think it's worth stepping back and taking a look at why does reinsurance matter? Is it actually a big industry? And so the answer is like reinsurance companies are capitalized at about $570 billion. So that means nothing unless you put it in context, which is uh, utilities. So you pay utilities every month. Everybody pays utilities. Everybody knows who their utility is. No one, probably none of you can name a reinsurance company. Utilities only have a $1 trillion capitalization. So reinsurance is about half the capitalization of utilities. Telcos, so your telecom providers, your cell phones, they're about $1.8 trillion. The oil and gas industry is about $3 trillion. So $570 billion, yes, it's smaller than these things, but it's still a huge industry that you probably only heard about today. And I guess that that's one reason why I should care. But I don't think that's very compelling. I mean, just because there's money out there. But I did find some things that were reasonably compelling and not just the fact that there is like a lot of money in it because, quite frankly, there's a ton of money in lots of things that I could care less about. Um, but no, you know, it's interesting, Jeff, you were right. There are There is a really interesting role for reinsurance because it turns out that every consumer in the market is actually a little bit risk averse. Everybody out there who's out out there buying stuff is actually kind of averse to risk at some level, or at least some people in a market for commodities are risk averse. And so that means also all corporations are a little bit risk averse. There's some corporations out there that want to be able to hedge against their risk because corporations are people too. And so insurance companies as well want to do this. And so basically what this means is that as uh, more and more companies out there are exposed to risks from climate change. Okay, there's an opportunity to capitalize on that um, that risk, right? The, the the fear of that risk and the money in that risk, and and use this market based instrument to help actually fund um, measures to mitigate climate change. Basically, to take money that would be used to say, look, we want to hedge on our own risk and invest it into strategies that might head off some of those catastrophic changes. Now that to me sounds pretty cool that sounds pretty cool and with that said i think we'll take a brief break here and when we come back we're going to talk about something pretty exciting and cool electric vehicles Do I start now? Whenever you'd like. Okay. Uh, my name is Michael Nicholas. I work as a researcher here at the University of California, Davis, at the Institute of Transportation Studies. And if you want to add a few more acronyms, at the Plug-In Hybrid and Electric Vehicle Research Center. I work with uh, a team of researchers that studies uh, electric vehicles, um, anything that plugs in. I have only ever owned a Toyota Corolla. Um, and I don't even know the first thing there is to know about what it means to go and buy a car. Um, but I do know not very many people have electric vehicles. And if I were to go and shop for an EV, I don't even know where I would start. Who has them? Does every dealership sell EVs? Um, do I need to, like, go hunting for them? Do I need to buy them online? Is it, like, an eBay kind of thing? Who sells these things and what are they exactly? So uh, most dealers have them, especially in California. Uh and sometimes you just have to know about them and ask them. And so that's the first step is it's literally as simple as just asking. 
and to see if it's right for you. Uh, we do have some tools that we offer uh, as part of uh, research. It's, it's out, outward-facing research. It's called the EV Explorer. Uh, if you put in EV Explorer UC Davis, you can put in your travel, and then uh, it'll kind of guide you through uh, what an electric car might mean for you, how much money you could save, um, and uh, that would be another place to start. So um, simply asking the dealer, yes, they do have them, and even now we, ha- we see them in the used market. So you could just go on Craigslist. It could be that easy as well. So it sounds like I need to do a lot of upfront research of my own before I can even, you know, find out if an EV is right for me. Um, is this a pretty big barrier? Is an EV right for most people, um, or is it only a small niche crowd? And what kind of are the characteristics of somebody that maybe should seriously put in some time to research EVs? So if you're sitting out there without an electric vehicle and you're wondering, I've heard, you know, I've heard about Tesla, and some people have heard a, a few models here and there. Um, would you actually consider one? And the answer is it's not necessarily for everyone. Um, but there's a lot of people who try it and uh, they like it for reasons they wouldn't have guessed in the first place. And so the only way to, to figure that out for yourself is to go out and try one. There's two ty- types of EVs. That's one where you can you can basically uh, take all the risk out of buying a plug-in car. It's called a plug-in hybrid. So you, you have your engine a backup engine, and then you can uh, you can travel maybe uh, the first 20 or 40 miles on electricity, just like an EV, and then when the battery um, uh, runs out, um, you keep going because you still have your gasoline engine. So that works for a lot of people without um, much risk if you're not sure and you don't want to do research. Um, that's one way to do it. The other way you can kind of think about it is uh, you've got your other vehicles in the household, so if you've got two vehicles, uh, you can't go too wrong either. Uh, you can have one uh, battery electric vehicle with, for your kind of uh, around town stuff. And then um, if you have another gasoline vehicle, you can kind of split the tasks. Many people listening to this program know that, that we are big fans of uh, America's favorite superhero, um, Elon Musk. And uh, Elon Musk believes that electric vehicles are going to save the world. Is this true? Are electric vehicles going to save the world? I think they'll be part of saving the world. I think we have a little bit of ways to go before electric vehicles really kind of come into their own. The batteries need to get cheaper. Uh, they need to be smaller, better energy density. So I think we're – you can see the light at the end of the tunnel, but I think um, we're not quite there yet. What are the biggest barriers to getting more EVs in more homes? Well, batteries cover a lot of it because what you have is a trade-off between battery and infrastructure. So if you take the extreme, you have a million-mile vehicle, and you're never going to drive a million miles or a million-mile battery range, and you never need infrastructure. You just charge it up once, and it's a, you know, it's good for the life of the car. So you take that back down to a little more realistic assumptions of maybe 300 miles, like a Tesla, or 100 miles. And as you decrease the range... Um, Infrastructure becomes more of a barrier, um, but if you increase the range, uh, you don't need to have um, as much infrastructure. So if I rent and I live in an apartment, are EVs right for me? There's a lot of people who, you know, they're very interested in technology, and uh, the EV is uh, kind of the, the newest, coolest thing uh, in automotive technology. Uh, and so you see a lot of people who want that, but they live in an apartment. So there's a couple solutions. One is... Um, they are uh, 
the California Energy Commission, for example, is has a big focus on giving out grants to uh, apartment owners, and they'll install infrastructure so you can have uh, your home uh, charger. But as I was talking about earlier, the plug-in hybrid, you don't need a home infrastructure, and you can, if you have it at work, you can plug in at work and uh, shift a lot of your travel. But then you don't necessarily need to have a charger at home because you can still use gas. And so you have this sort of uh, plug-in hybrid where you can enjoy the benefits of an EV, but then still have the flexibility of a gas car. You talk about these benefits of EVs, Mike. What are the benefits of EVs? On the face of it, it should be cheaper than gas. So you save a bit of money um, driving electric, but that's not usually what people talk about. People usually talk about the EV feel, and it's just a different feel for driving. It also opens up the possibility for dynamics that you didn't know that you wanted. Um, For example, I just drove the Chevrolet, um, they call it the uh, Bolt with a B, B B-O-L-T, not to be confused with the Volt, which is a plug-in hybrid with a V-O-L-T. Very confusing, but it's a 200 plus mile battery, all battery electric vehicle. So it's it's, um, got a fairly long range and has one pedal driving. Yep, and it looks kind of like a like a Sonic is the, the looks, chassis. Yeah, it's it's not a it's it's, it's not a compact car, but right. it does have four doors. Right. So it's it's um it's a smaller car, but they uh, have done a very good execution of what we call one pedal driving. Mm-hmm. And once you do it, or once you um, experience it, you'll probably buy an electric car just for this feature. It's the ability to never touch the brake. Right. And so you can just drive with the gas pedal, and if you want, if you want to stop, you lift up on the gas pedal, and then uh, that'll eventually bring you to a nice smooth stop. You'll never be a better driver um, by never touching the brake, and it's um, that you can save energy. It all uh, recoups into the battery, um, and let's say you're going on top of a hill in San Francisco, you can stop on the hill, and uh, it will just literally stop on the hill, and it won't roll backwards um, because the um, the electric motor will keep you at a, this steady state, and then you just keep driving it. So if EVs are starting to get mainstreamed, what about um, public charging infrastructure? Who, who's uh, – who's, you know, I hear about that. So I see some, you know, like uh, mm-hmm. you see the spots places. And uh, so who's building those out? Are, are, are they going to – the utility going to build out a bunch of those? Where are those coming from? So that's a really uh, good question. I guess the, when you traditionally think about it, and this was, used to be true, is that, oh, if you don't have this charging infrastructure, you're not going to be able to get to your destination. And as these batteries get longer and you have different options like plug-in hybrids, that's not actually true. Um, so the public infrastructure isn't the barrier um, that it that it once was. As these um, battery ranges get longer, people rarely drive more than 200 miles in a day, and so uh, all of a sudden... Um, it's more of a convenience and a flexibility rather than a, a need. So uh, to answer your question on who's putting them in, um, a lot of uh, store owners, they actually like to put them in because it keeps people in their store longer. Uh, and I, there was a, a retailer that said, okay, if you can keep people in the store 50% longer, um, that will make up for the fact that we have to pay for the electricity and even the installation of this charging equipment. So they're willing to give it away for free and they'll get it back on the other side just to sell more stuff. In workplaces, we actually see, especially in the Silicon Valley, and we we kind of wonder if this will um, propagate, we see that people are able to recruit better uh, employees. You know, when when the HR department, or when people go to interview, they say, well, do you have 
electric vehicle charging, and I don't want to work at, the, at this company unless it has electric vehicle charging. And then all of a sudden, the HR department's asking, you know, the head management, like, we're not getting the best people. Where's our charging infrastructure? And then all of a sudden, it becomes like a real thing where somebody cares about it rather than, you know, the crazy guy with the EV. And so um, all these things kind of um, compound on themselves. And so who's installing them? It's right now, it's a lot of um, people who are kind of trying to do the right thing. A lot of tester uh, stations like, well, let's put one or two in. Um, but then kind of the big opportunity, I think, going forward is uh, the workplace charging. Uh, and the public charging, you know, we've looked at that. And I don't know if people will um, maybe not like me for saying this, but um, usually when you're shopping, you're doing it pretty close to home. And you don't need it to, like, get, you know, to the shopping center and get back. And it's only, I think, maybe like 4% of people who, you know, it's it's actually providing you know, more electric miles versus mm-hmm. just being a convenience. People love free stuff and they love to plug in and they, I, I wish there were chargers, but when you look at, you know, how much pool people use versus how much do they need for this travel, um, it's two different questions. Cool. So, uh, we've talked about, uh, charging infrastructure and how maybe increasingly we don't need as much charging infrastructure as batteries are bigger. You're right. Um, but, that still seems kind of a very urban-centric kind of view of things. What about rural people that do have longer drives, that do do 60 miles to one destination that's out somewhere that's not going to be very dense, probably is unlikely to get a charger anytime soon? What, what about these people? So you could go plug-in hybrid. I mean, there are some people for whom a gas car is, um, is the best choice. So not to say everyone needs an EV, um, and if it were... That that is uh, a situation you're describing. Then yeah, I'd, I'd get a hybrid or something, uh, or my, you might have a truck anyway. But if you look at the numbers, uh, <laughs> there's not that many people um, who have that sort of pattern that an EV wouldn't fit. In the long run, maybe these EVs are cheaper than mm-hmm. buying an internal combustion engine. So if I go out and I look at the sticker price of the Chevy Volt, it's a plug-in hybrid. Um, how much is that going to set me back? And what does that compare to in terms of an ICE? That's a great question. I'm glad you kind of asked it in that way. And that's one of the barriers is this knowledge barrier. Um, there are currently rebates available, uh, tax credits. And so you can get for a Volt or a Leaf or anything with a fairly large battery, you can get $7,500 back from the government on your taxes, or at least it reduces your tax liability by that amount. And the state will give you, um, unless you're um, above a certain income, uh, they will give you uh, 2500 or um, on a back on a BEV, a battery electric vehicle, all electric, and $1,500 back on a plug-in hybrid. So you talk about the, um, the price that's uh, commonly advertised. Uh, let's just say for the Volt, it's $37,000. Um, I think it might be slightly more depending on options. But then you take the $7,500 off from the federal and then $1,500 off from the uh, state, and that turns out to be uh, $28,500 or something. So it can be less than $30,000, even though when you go shopping on the website, it says $37,000. So um, it can be quite affordable, and that's the whole point. Mike, you mentioned that for a typical EV homeowner, um, they're going to spend roughly about the same amount as their home on charging their EV. Mm-hmm. That sounds like it's doubling your electricity use. It's doubling your electricity use, but not necessarily your bill. Okay. And so <clears throat> with, um, with electricity, uh, there's you're actually paying for 
the wires to get it to your house, and it's something that's paid for. And so they charge you for the uh, the peak usage when everyone's using their air conditioning in August, um, but there's a lot of times when there's extra space on the wires, and so there's this drive towards getting the cost of the, if you can use this extra space around uh, those peak times, they can actually sell you electricity for cheaper. And so they have what are called time of use rates, and this is one way to do it, is to say, okay, at night, we've got extra space on the wires and extra generating capacity, and it doesn't cost us as much to deliver this energy. And it's kind of a rough uh, guide. Electricity from the generator costs about $0.04, and then it costs maybe $0.10 to get it to your house. And so they're paying $0.10 for wires, $0.04 for electricity. And so... Uh, let's just say you're at 14 cents per kilowatt hour, and that's the unit that it's sold in. Um, we're going to see as EVs get better at using this extra space going towards that four cent mark. And so at 14 cents, you're um, you're still saving money, but um, you can expect in the future to be able to take advantage of uh, this this natural effect. Cool. Um, so on the other side, uh, what if EV demand is a lot, and are we going to have to build out new power plants? And if I bought my EV because I want to be a green consumer, mm-hmm. and I think electric vehicles are definitely you know a green product, but you have to build out a bunch of new power plants in order to support all of the EVs, is that kind of a conflict? Is this an issue? So, no. It, it, um, it's a good point. So, a power plant, and now we're looking at... Um, power generation. So if you look at power generation, um, and I think you're, um, you're probably um, thinking the same thing, but uh, the capacity we're adding right now is generally all renewable. And so you can use these old fossil um, uh, burning plants like natural gas. They're, they're, they're not that bad, and uh, they're fairly cheap to build. But a lot of the new capacity is this uh, renewable energy. And so solar, big solar plants, uh, solar energy on top of people's houses, wind generation, uh, hydropower. And so these sources are the ones where we're going to get our energy from in the future and maybe even be able, if we get enough of it, be able to retire some of these old plants. And that's actually one of the promises of electric vehicles is because it's energy storage, we can, you know, when the wind is blowing, uh, when the sun is shining, then that's when we charge our cars and we can uh, kind of drive down uh, this cost of uh, renewable electricity. And so increasingly, EVs will work in tandem with our renewable energy generation to make a cleaner transportation and a cleaner grid. In the great state of California, we have many a program to help value things like the environment, clean water, energy. Um, Mike, Mike, (laughs) when was the first time you drove an electric vehicle? And And what kind of vehicle was it? I think the first time I drove an electric vehicle was uh, something called an e-box. And it's a, it's a, there's only 26 uh, in the world. And uh, these uh, cars are uh, an old uh, Scion XB, so like 2007 Scion XB. And they just, they ripped out the motor and then they stuck in a bunch of batteries. Um, but they, um, it goes back all the way to the EV1. And uh one of the important things about this electric vehicle is they oversized the motor uh, and made it super fast. And so that was, um, it was no vanilla electric car. And so it, it kind of made me, it opened my eyes um, into how, how fun these things can be. 
So, you know, one thing I'm concerned about with electric vehicles, Mike, I'm very concerned about this because I like to ride my bicycle, quite frankly, and electric vehicles are very quiet. They're mm-hmm. like shadows, and they sneak up on you. I'm, a, I'm worried. Um, are we going to get – are we going to have noisemakers, like mandatory noisemakers on our EVs? I mean, I need yeah, something to make so. them make noise. Do you, know, do, do you know there are, there are noisemakers, voluntary noisemakers on uh, every Toyota car? So if they're below a certain uh, miles per hour, I think it's like 15, where the road noise is actually louder than the noisemaker, um, they already exist. And you may not know them. You may think that the car needs to make this noise. No, it doesn't. It's just a, it's just a noisemaker. It sounds like um, something out of uh, you know Back to the Future sounds, but it's really not a necessary noise. Wait, can you please m- imitate the noisemaker for us? It goes, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I think that was I think that was a winner. Thanks, Mike. All right, thanks. Feel right, yeah, no one wants to feel something that don't feel right.